Sorry for being a little late, but we had um, a lot of people laughing. I couldn't get control of my audience, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> like I said, we'll be learning about Islamic doctrine with our guest, Dr. Bill Warner, but let's, um, I want you to see a video I saw a couple years back. And just imagine if progressives were con continuing to control um, the study of Islamic doctrine. This is what it would look like. Let's take a look. Related to mean holy war, but holy and war are both English words with Latin origins, so it probably doesn't mean exactly that. According to Google Translate, the individual words exist separately in Arabic. So what is jihad? Does it refer to a set of conflicts, like how the Crusades refer to a set of Christian holy wars? Nope, it does not. So why do they need the extra word jihad to describe a holy war? Does it even mean holy war at all? Well, the short answer is no. What jihad really means is struggle. It's a major religious duty that many consider to be the unofficial sixth pillar of Islam, right below self-control, giving to the poor, and visiting Mecca. Technically, jihad means a struggle in the way of Allah. Fringe radical militant groups think that attacking the West is part of that struggle, but the majority of Muslims don't. Most of them are actually opposed to using the word jihad in that way because it associates the word with terrorism. So what does jihad mean to them? Well, in Islam, there are two types of jihad, the outer and the inner. The outer is the kind that defends Islam against outside aggression, like they did in the Crusades. The inner represents the internal spiritual struggle to seek self-improvement in the way of Allah. So basically, it's the struggle to be a better Muslim, both spiritually and in practice. The following passage, which is from a highly debated Islamic text called the Hadith, sums it up pretty nicely. In it, Muhammad says to a band of returning warriors who have come from the lesser jihad to the greater jihad, the striving of a servant of Allah against his own desires. So despite the negative attention it gets, jihad can refer to some really wonderful things. There's even a website called myjihad.org that highlights good jihads, and it's part of an entire online movement devoted to taking the word back from Islamic extremists. Even Twitter has gotten in on it with a hashtag myjihad, where people tweet about their good deeds or positive struggles to help better themselves and their communities. Like, my jihad is to balance work and family life. My jihad is to challenge society norms and work towards improving our culture. My jihad is to keep the air in my country clean. And finally, my jihad is trying to appreciate the jihad in a place where the jihad is misunderstood. So see, it's really not as scary a word as you might think. It doesn't mean holy war, and if that hashtag is any indication, it has the power to change the world. As you can see, the jihad can be a wonderful thing. Okay, so if you're not buying it, Alright, here's why you shouldn't buy it. That My Jihad campaign and the My Jihad website is done by the Council on American Islamic Relations, the CARE chapter, out of Chicago, Illinois. Okay, let me tell you about tonight's guest. Dr. Bill Warner has been a physicist, businessman, and a professor. He is the director of the Center of Study Political Islam. He is the first person to use the scientific method to produce a Quran that can easily be understood. He made the other two sacred texts of Islam, the Sirah, which is Muhammad's biography, and the Hadith, his traditions, simple to read and understand. He has written a dozen books on Islam, his Sharia law for non-Muslims, an international bestseller. It's been a really good seller here as well. He developed the first self-study courses on Islam, the foundations of Islam, and the three-level training, a self-study course on political Islam, that explains Islamic political doctrine. Dr. Warner is a renowned national and international speaker, 
on the topics of Islamic doctrine and history, and we are thrilled to have him. Let's give a warm Northeast Ohio welcome to Dr. Bill Warner. Let me introduce myself by showing my methods. We just saw here a uh, thing on my jihad, in which jihad is an effort. It's not that dirty, nasty, cutting off heads of people who are not Islamic. Here's the way I approach this problem. I go to the source who is Muhammad. I go to the Hadith, which are his traditions. In Bukhari, there are roughly 7,000 traditions. And of those, 21%, I've counted all these things, 21% deal with jihad. That's a whole, that's about 1,500 hadith, little stories about jihad. Now, if we take these 1,500 stories and we put them in two stacks, cutting off the heads of kafirs, unbelievers, and doing good works as inner struggle, we'll find the following. Over 98% of the hadith by Muhammad about jihad are killing and less than 2% are about inner struggle. So here's my methods. Is jihad about inner struggle? Yes, it is, less than 2%. Is jihad about killing the calf or the unbeliever? Yes, it is, about 98%. You see the difference in my method here. I don't deny what she said is true, I just said it doesn't count. Now then, we want to talk to you about the Islamic doctrine on another issue that's important down in Tennessee, which is the issue of migration. Now, my ancestors were migrants, most of them, as was most Southerners, I'm also part of various Indian tribes, including Cherokee and Choctaw. But the most of them came over on the boat because back in Europe, things were bad. They were either starving and poor, or they were being politically abused. So this is the type of ancestry that most people have in this country who are immigrants. But there's another thing about Islam, which is an aspect of migration which has nothing to do with the reason that my ancestors came, nor yours. That is, Islam is so important about migration that their very calendar is based on this fact. Next slide. That's something we have to get worked out. This is Muhammad's career. He preached the religion of Islam for 13 years and converted about 150 Arabs. That's about 10 a year. He then left Mecca after 13 years, and he left Mecca at the insistence of the Meccans. They said, leave or we'll kill you. He went to Medina, where he became a politician and a jihadist. Then he was overwhelmingly successful. When he died, every Arab in the Central Arabian Peninsula was a Muslim. This is a success curve. Not much success at all, and then massive success. Islam makes its starting point, next slide, makes its calendar based not on the birth of Muhammad, its calendar is not based on when the Quran was first revealed, it is based on his migration. Why? Migration was the beginning of success. This is the reason that the Islamic calendar uses the term AH, which is the fact that that marks the beginning of the Islamic calendar. Now the hijra, which is the Arabic term for migration, is sunnah, S-U-N-N-A, and that means Muhammad is the perfect human being. There are 91 verses in the Quran which state that every Muslim is to imitate every aspect of themselves on the basis of Muhammad. So how do we know this Muhammad? Next slide. <coughs> 
sidebar here. In Medina, Muhammad was driven out of Mecca as a migrant. They welcomed him with open arms, and they said to him, you can resolve all of our disputes. He became a judge. Five years later, after being welcomed, the town which had been half Jewish had no Jews left at all except for one sex slave, and all the other Arabs were Muslim. This is the Sunnah of Muhammad. This means that migration is the beginning of jihad and the annihilation of the standard culture. So this is important to know. Now then, this is a second migration I want to talk about. The first migration was the one that brought success. This next one is a battle map. Next slide. Next slide. We're missing something here. Oh, there we go. I took and plotted the Islamic migration for 1,200 years. This all started out with putting, make a database of 548 battles that Islam fought against classical civilization. Now, when you get a ta data table of 548 battles, what are you going to do with it? If you read it, you'll fall asleep. So I decided to put it in terms of a battle map. And we're going to look and see red dots are a battle has occurred. And then next slide. Next slide. It's not a difficulty. Well, here we go. We'll just launch immediately. The white dots are battles. The green is the spread of Islam. Every tick of the clock is 20 years. So we can see here the migration out of Saudi Arabia and into across the Mediterranean. Immediately, the Middle East falls. The Christian empires, our Christian civilization was immediately attacked. Damascus was the intellectual center of Christian thought. It was, it was annihilated. We can see here in Spain, there's many attacks. These started in 711. There's going to be some 200 battles fought in Spain alone. And notice here, when we think of Islam, we think of deserts and Arabs, you, think of, you don't think of ships. But notice that this is a naval war here that's projecting power across the Mediterranean. Now you'll notice that it's relentless. It never stops. And the reason for this is Muhammad was relentless in his jihad. In the last nine years of his life, he averaged at a jihad event on the average of every six weeks. That's an intense amount of work. So this is playing out the suit of Muhammad on a cosmic, on a global scale. Every, now something else that's happening here, by the way, you need to know, is that slaves are being taken. There's going to be over a million Europeans sold into slavery because of these raids. And you can see the spread of the green. By the way, did you know that North Africa used to be Christian? Where did St. Augustine write from? All the Middle East was Christian. Turkey was half Christian. Turkey was Christian. The seven churches of Asia were in Turkey. It was called Asia Minor. Now, by the way, notice that in Spain, 700 years of battles drove Spain out, drove the Muslims out of Spain. We can see now that Islam is expanding into the Balkans and into Eastern Europe. There will be continued battles there. And then over a course of battles over a few centuries, Islam is pushed out. So this is the second great migration. This is an explanation of why the Middle East is no longer Christian. Iraq was Christian. Persia was half Christian. 
Afghanistan was Buddhist, Pakistan was Hindu. All of this migration with the sword changed everything. Next slide. All right. Next slide. What happens after Islam enters a civilization? All right, let's examine that. Next slide. I'm a scientist. I love graphs. I love charts. How many numbers have I given you already? 91 verses every six weeks. The reason I do this is I want to quantify what I'm saying. What I say comes from Islam. It comes from data. This is all fact-based reasoning. Now then, I have two curves here. Notice that the date is time is on the horizontal axis, and then we have the vertical axis, which is percentage, basically. The blue line is when Islam invaded Turkey. And notice that it goes up until it's 100%. Today, Turkey is 99.7% Islamic, 0.3% uh, Christianity, and that will go away soon. So what we have, the yellow line is the fall of the native civilization. The blue line is the rise of Islam. This is called Islamic saturation. It started off Christian. Now notice something on the scale at the bottom. We're marking time in centuries. All right? Islam has a massive advantage of us, over us. We measure time with a watch. They measure time with a calendar. Do you see the difference? So what's as important here is, is that this is a gradual process. It did not happen overnight, but it happened. Now then, next slide. I want to draw these two things out. We can see here the blue line is what I call Islamic saturation. That is, the country after a while becomes 100% Muslim. Now then, this is introduced in the middle. At first you have introduction of Sharia. Then in the middle region, it's Jihad plus Sharia. It is Sharia that transforms a civilization into an Islamic country. It is not Jihad. Jihad introduces the Sharia. Immigration introduces the Sharia. Then the Sharia works its way, and that the native civilization collapses. Next slide. And here, we have the same yellow curve. And we have the native culture starts out at 100%, then the struggle with Sharia, and the native culture is treated as a demi, D-H-I-M-M-I. -M -M a demi is someone who agrees to live with Islam and not resist. So this process of being a demi goes on until finally at the very end, Christianity is annihilated in Turkey. Just annihilated. Next slide. This is a pattern. It doesn't just happen in one place. Turkey, North Africa, Egypt, Iraq, Syria all used to be Christian, Afghanistan, Buddhist, Pakistan, Hindu, Malaysia used to be Hindu. These are all Islamic now. Next slide. Now then, if something happens on a consistent basis, there's a reason behind it. Duh. So let's take a look. What causes this annihilation effect? Next, this is the doctrine of Islam. Next slide. Okay, here we go. All of this, what is Islam? We need to answer that question in a scientific way. We need an objective study, not just, well, I think, or I met this Muslim and he said. All of Islam is based on the Quran and Muhammad's Sunnah. Most people think it's found in the Quran, but there are 91 verses in the Quran that say that every Muslim is to follow the Muhammad. And we find Muhammad in his biography and his hadith, his traditions. And by the way, if you want to, you can take notes, but if you 
if you want to also, you can come up to after the talk, take my business card, send me an email, and I'll send you the whole slideshow. Okay, so it's easy. All right, next slide. Real quick, I've got to take you through the Quran, the book that everybody's heard of and who's read it and understood it. There are two Qurans. Two Qurans. Now, they're all in the same binding, but there's two Qurans. In the early Quran. Remember the life of Muhammad? Mecca, Medina? There's a Quran written in Mecca, which is very religious, has no jihad in it at all. Then there's a Quran written in Medina, which is, does include 24% of it is jihad. Next slide. Now then, these two Qurans are so different that I could take a group of high school students here in Cleveland, give them a one-hour lecture, and then let them take a little cheat sheet in of the rules, and you could read at random verses from the Quran, and they go, oh, that's from Mecca, oh, that's from Medina, that's from Medina. They are that different. It is though they're written by two different authors. Here we have, you have your religion and I have mine. Let there be no compulsion in religion. If you go to interfaith gatherings, you'll hear this over and over and over again. But then you get that puzzling stuff. In Medina, I shall cast terror into the hearts of the Kafirs. Strike off their heads. Strike off the very tips of their fingers. Do you notice a contradiction here? And this is one reason that people go, well, it all depends on how you interpret it. Well, it all depends on the context. Well, you're right about context. Next slide. These are my three books that I used to study. I printed the Hadith, all 7,000 of Bukhari off on my laser printer. Uh, I bought a paperback version of the life of Muhammad. I regretted that after I got through with it. And then I got the glorious Quran. So all of Islam is found in these three books. It's not found in the opinion of the Muslim. It's not found in care. It's not found in the nice professional engineer who's a Muslim at work. It is not found in those places. It is found in these three books. Next slide. Now then notice something else here. I am not going to be discussing Muslims. I discuss Islam. I discuss three books. I discuss ideas, words on paper. I do not talk about people. This is important. Because on people, you'll never be right. Because no matter what you knew about a Muslim who said this or that, somebody else knows a nice one. Right? There are only two Muslims you need to become acquainted with. They're Allah and Muhammad. So I talk about doctrine. Next slide. Now then, let's go back to that idea that most people think the Quran is where Islam is found. But if you, those three books when they're on the table, the Quran is quite small. It's only 14% of Islamic text, whereas the Sirah is 26% and the Hadith are 60. So Islam is this much Allah and this much Muhammad. But this is good news. And why? Well, we've already determined the fact that the Quran's hard to understand because it's contradictory and it's two different books integrated into one book. Is there any person here who cannot understand the biography of a man? Everyone here can read a biography and understand it. Anyone here can read a little incident of Muhammad's life and understand it. He did this, he said that. So this much of Islam is Muhammad and is very easy to understand. Don't deal with Allah. Forget about the Quran. Deal with Muhammad. Next slide. Now then, Islam is the doctrine found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Islam is Allah and Muhammad. Now I've done something very important here. You cannot put your arms around Islam. Nothing is missing. 
If it's in the circle, it is Islam. If it ain't in the circle, it ain't Islam. Do you follow what I'm trying to convey to you here? We have defined the problem. Next slide. Now I have to deal with a little problem here which I call dualism. There are, seems to be different, if you know Muslims, there's some nice Muslims you've met, you're a professional engineer at work, and then you've read about what's happening in, in Iraq and you go, you know, I don't want ISIS living in my hometown. Well, this is a contradiction. And so you ask yourself the question, well, which one is the real one? That's where you make your mistake. So there's two Islams because there's two, there's two kinds, there's two kinds of Muhammad, so therefore there's two kinds of Muslim. There's two kinds of Quran, so we have two kinds. Now then, here we have the same, the same contradiction. These contradict each other, but they're both true at the same time. You're not used to thinking that way. In your mind, if two things contradict each other, then one of them's wrong. You think like a classical Westerner. This is the whole stumbling block about Islam. Contradictory things can be true at the same time. How could it not be? The early verse here was spoken by who? Allah. Well, Allah's got to be right because Allah's God of the universe. So the first verse is still true. The second verse is better. It is stronger and it is later. So the verses which can make you go like, mm, I don't like that, are all later, are all later written verses. But the Quran says in three different verses that the later verse is stronger or better than the earlier verse, but the earlier verse is still true. This is dualism. So when you get to the contradiction, accept it and move along. They're both true. It's like having hot water and running, hot water and cold water in a sink. You've got what you need. Now then, let's do this. By the way, we're going to get back to migration very quickly, but I need to take you on a little sidebar here to explain to you that there's doctrine. Uh, next slide. Um, next slide. Ah. Bar charts. I love them. Notice something here. The Meccan Quran, this is the amount of the trilogy, the three books, devoted to jihad. The Meccan Quran does not have any jihad in it. That's the reason here that from Mecca, when you go to the interfaith gatherings, that's the reason they're always reading from the Quran of Mecca. They never read from the Quran of Medina. 24% of the Quran written in Medina is about jihad. That's a lot. It is not a verse. Okay. 21% uh, of the Hadith is about jihad. 31% of Islamic total doctrine is about jihad. So you thought jihad was important, but you didn't know how important it was. Remember, Muhammad did not have any success until he turned to jihad. Next slide. Now we have something else. In the early Quran, Jews are spoken of well. In the latter Quran, they're spoken of viciously. 12% of the Sirah is devoted to Jew hatred. 8.9% of the Hadith. A total of 9% is over 9% is devoted to Jew hatred. Mein Kampf has only 7% of its text devoted to Jew hatred. But there's verses in Mecca, Quran, which are like sound wonderful about the Jews. Which is it? This is dualism. Do you see what I'm trying to point out to you here? They're, they're contradictory and true at the same time. Next slide. Here we have the two Muhammads, which we've already been over. Next slide. And we've just summarized it. Dualism. 
The Quran loves Jews, the Quran hates Jews. Jihad. There is no jihad in Mecca, it's filled with jihad in Medina. And then we have the two Muhammads, Muhammad the preacher, who is peaceful, and Muhammad the jihadist and the politician. All right, next slide. This means that Muslims will exist in two formats, nice and oppressive. It's always been this way, because Muhammad was this way. Do you understand why it's necessary to stop off on this little sidebar and look at this? Because this way, don't ever get into the which one is it. It's both of them. Next slide. Now we can go back to the laws of Islamic saturation. And let's go to the next slide, the blue curve along. Now let's explain this. Next slide. Fight them and, and them are the kafirs. By the way, I don't use the word unbeliever. I don't use the word... Um, non-Muslim, or any of the other infidel, the word in the Arabic is kafir. The word can't be translated. I won't bore you with the details as to why. So I prefer to use what the text says it is. Okay. Fight the kafirs until there's no more discord and the religion of Allah reigns absolute. So when is Islam going to start, stop fighting? When every one of you convert. Do you understand how this drives saturation? It's never half a loaf, they have to have a whole loaf. Next slide. This is a hadith. I have been ordered to wage war against mankind until they accept there's no God but Allah, and it goes on. So how long is the fighting supposed to go on? To those all. We already have here in, this, in the US Congress, I believe, where we have two Muslims. When will that process stop? when they're all Muslim. Do you see the, 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 as John Wandola calls it, the threat doctrine here? There is no point of compromise which ever satisfies. You see, some people down there, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and a lot of the churches down there want to compromise religion, compromise until Islam, and that way they'll win. You don't compromise your way to victory. Next slide. Here's another one. I have been commit been directed to fight the Kafirs until every one of them admits. Am I making this stuff up? This is doctrine. This is Muhammad. Next slide. So, over time, the Sharia rules everything. This is saturation. And history demonstrates this. It's not a theory. Now, there's places where there are exceptions. In Spain, there was an exception, seven centuries of war. And in Europe, there was an exception, two centuries of war. So, you can stop Islam once it, after it invades with the sword, or you can stop it beforehand. But the, if you think that a natural process of living in a community is going to make peace with Islam, you know nothing about Islamic doctrine or Islamic history. Islam must dominate. Next slide. Islam must dominate, and it cannot assimilate. Now I'm going to go to the next slide. Now this sounds like something very politically incorrect to say because everybody's saying, you know, we'll bring them to America, they'll eat some hamburgers, watch some football games, hey, we're good to go. They'll, uh, they'll be going to NASCAR races. <laughs> now then, true assimilation is impossible because the Quran divides the world into Muslim and Kafir. And there are 12 verses 
in the Quran which state that the Muslim is never the true friend of the Kafir. <coughs> Personally, after studying Islam for decades, this to me is one of the most discouraging things about it. Twelve verses which state they're never truly your friend. Do you see how this doesn't allow assimilation? Now then, can they be friendly? Oh yes, very friendly. Do you know the difference between being friendly and a friend? If you don't, if you're confused about it, go to any car dealership. <laughs> Are they friendly? Very friendly. Are they your friend? No, they're not your friend. So if they're never your friend, and they're always supposed to favor the Muslim over the non-Muslim, what does this mean? Where is the assimilation? Next slide. Quran 3.28, believers should not take Kafirs as friends in preference to other believers. Is that clear? That means if you have a Muslim boss and he has two workers, one Kafir and one Muslim, who's he supposed to promote? That's right. So this multicultural idea is very peculiar. Multiculturalism loves Islam, which is a monoculture doctrine. Isn't that peculiar? Next slide. This is another one, uh, a minor uh, collector of, uh, of hadith. Whoever collegiates or aggregates with Kafirs and lives with them, he's one of them. In other words, if you hang with them, you're one of them. Do you see why this does not mean for real assimilation? Remember, that's the whole thread here. Next slide. Now let's deal with this Kafir business. Here's how important the Kafir is. Two-thirds of the Quran is about you and me. Not about how to be a Muslim, but it's about the Kafir. 81% of Muhammad's life story is about the Kafir. 37% of the Hadith are about the Kafir. Or 51% of Islamic doctrine is about the people in this room. I've read religious texts from Hinduism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Christianity, Judaism. I studied Torah at the Orthodox Synagogue. These books are very unusual. Islam is very unusual. A Buddhist sutra, to take an example, talks about how to be a Buddhist. It ain't trash-talking non-Buddhist. So this is peculiar. Most of Islamic doctrine is about you and me. And none of it is pleasant. I define political Islam as the Islamic doctrine that deals with the Kafir. And it's about politics, it's not about religion. So Islam is always hiding behind the veil of the religion. Oh, it's our religion, not your political system. And what does their political system demand? That we submit to the Sharia. Therefore, laws like ALAC are needed badly. Now then, here's some other reasons that they don't assimilate. Next, uh, next uh, slide. I don't care what your religion is, here's all I care about it. What kind of ethic does it give you and what kind of character does it give you? Do you see I'm describing a religion as to how it relates to me? I want to know what your ethics are. If you move in next door, can I trust you? Will you return the screwdriver when I loan it to you? Okay. What is your character? What are your ethics? Well, in Islamic ethics, there, are no, there is no such thing as a golden rule. Judaism has a golden rule. Hinduism has a golden rule. I have atheist friends who believe in the golden rule. Buddhism has a golden rule. 
There's only one religion that does not have a golden rule. Islam. Now, how does that affect a community? Because is a community not based on interaction with each other, reciprocal obligations? This is all about the believer and the assimilation. Now then, under the Sharia, which is the Sharia is the process of taking current needs and interpreting them under the Hadith and the Quran. In other words, Sharia simply asks this question, how would Muhammad do this? If Muhammad were in a space shuttle, how would he pray? I'm serious, this is the kind of argument. So, in the Sharia, we as Kafir in a Sharia court are not allowed to testify. Okay? So this means as the Islam becomes stronger, the Dhimmi, D-H-I-M-M-I, becomes weaker and weaker. So it's inequality in front of the law. Our constitution is written around the concept that everyone should be equal before the law. Women, men, grumpy old men, everybody. Okay? Islam sets up a legal system in which there is no equality. It is written out clearly. Next slide. Now we're ready to summarize. The reason Islam doesn't assimilate is it has different ethics. Kafirs are hated and every Muslim has two natures. And it must dominate. It must dominate. This means the swimming pool has to be done according to Sharia rules. In the end, the schools have to have prayer rooms. They have to serve halal food. It must dominate on every single issue. That's what the purpose of Islam is. Next slide. Now then, why are they migrating? Next slide. Next slide. Here is migration in the, in the Quran. Those believers who migrated and made jihad in the cause of Allah, and those who gave them asylum and help, they are the true believers. They shall have forgiveness and honorable provisions. What is the purpose of migration? They made jihad. This is just doctrine. I'm making this stuff up. Next slide. Migration cannot be ended as long as there is kufr, unbelief, or as long as there is an enemy who resists. So what's the limit to the migration here? What's the limit? There is no limit. As long as there is unbelief, in other words, as long as there's a Christian or a Jew or an atheist in America, more migration must happen. Next slide. The Sharia civilization. Migration establishes Sharia. Migration starts, and here's the way it works. After migration comes jihad, and after jihad comes the insistence that things have to be done the Muslim way, the Sharia way. What destroyed Christianity in Turkey was not jihad. It was the fact that as a Christian man, if your daughter gets raped, you can't call the police. You see, there's a rule about the dhimmi. A slave is to be well treated. The dhimmi is to be humiliated. The Quran says they're to be humiliated. So, the process introduces the Sharia. The Muslims get more, Muslim, Islam gains greater and greater favor until finally, as a Christian or an atheist living inside of an Islamic society, you don't get promoted. You don't have any rights of court. You, the police won't respond to your calls. So what happens is century after century goes by. You go, I'm going down to the mosque. 
There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. Now I'm twice as rich. Nobody will rape my daughter. And I can get promoted or I can be a captain in the military. So the Dini has put it in, in inferior economic position. This is Sharia civilization. Next slide. And this is just a little graphic. The Sharia is based on the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Remember, it's a question of saying, if Muhammad ran a space capsule, how would he pray? That is, what can we take about the Quran? What can we take about, we know about Muhammad? And work this out so this is what Muhammad would have done. That's the process of the Sharia. Now then, what they tell me in Nashville, Tennessee is, is that the Sharia is just like Halakha, Jewish law. It's just like canon law. No. Canon law has nothing to say about me. <coughs> Sharia does. That's a huge difference. Next slide. So, the Hijra. All society must become Islamic. Limited, I won't say no assimilation, because some do assimilate to some degree, but it's never big. Dualism means there's no trust, and the Kafirs can be deceived. Did you know that one of the names of Allah is the great deceiver? Muhammad repeatedly commanded his followers to deceive, deceive the Kafir. Next slide. So, Hijra, Islamic migration being jihad. Do you believe that? I believe actually in Ohio we had him. Was he actually an immigrant or the sons of immigrants? It's the Ohio State killing. Son of an immigrant? He was born Somali. Oh, okay. Now then, next slide. Let's get this straight. Jihad, the lady was right, is not just holy war. Jihad is struggle. Jihad occurs in four ways, actually five, according to the Quran. There's jihad of the sword, the pen, the speech, and money. The Quran has a lot to say about those Muslims who will donate money to organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood. The man who buys a jihadist a horse shares in the same rewards in heaven as the jihadist. So, that means writing a letter to the editor. That means going to an interfaith gathering and telling all the... Um, this is just... Here's what happens in Nashville, Tennessee. At an interfaith gathering, the Christians and the Jews show up and they just sit there kind of like... <laughs> they want so badly to believe everything that's said. When you go to these things, the Christians know nothing except to be nice. So the Christians and the Jews show up at an interfaith gathering to tie. The Muslims show up to win. How do you think this works out? You see, the interfaith gathering is jihad. But the Christians, and I'm just talking about Nashville, Tennessee. They're probably very different here, but trust me. The religious, le the religious leadership in Nashville, Tennessee is corrupt. It has failed in its character. These are all nice people. They don't lie, they don't cheat, they don't steal, they're great, make a next door neighbor, but do not expect them to stand up on anything. They ain't tough enough to overstuff. Next slide. So here's how Sharia is coming along today. It's showing up in the textbooks. We have uh, textbooks now in the seventh grade in Tennessee which proclaim gladly that Islam is the, a great religion, one of the great civilizations. It was the first to give women their rights. 
Right? It had a golden age which gave us everything that we know, including integrated circuits and transistors. You know, this is what the, this is what children are being taught in the textbooks. Islam is raised in praise. Christianity is denigrated. Now you would think this was outraged to the religious leaders in Tennessee. They're too nice to be angry about anything. They've lost the ability for righteous anger and moral outrage. The interfaith gatherings are a bust. They're a Sharia victory. Now in Tennessee, the media takes up for Islam. I, by the way, ooh, we should have warned them in the beginning. I should have told you this before I started. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, I am one of America's top ten racist, hater, bigot Islamophobes. I'm tough enough to overstuff. Unfortunately, the clergy back in Tennessee, if you even threaten to use the word bigot in the room, they will run. And the universities, there's, they're more corrupt than the churches. I speak at a university only in Europe. I was invited to one university to speak, and at the end of the talk, I gave a talk somewhat like this, it was all charts and definitions. A man stood up in the back of the room and started screaming at me and pointing his finger and saying, you're a racist, you're a hater, you're a bigot, you should never be allowed on any campus, you're a disgrace to me. And he, then he started doing what I call looping, repeating the same thing over and over again. He was the head of the Middle East Department. <laughs> now then, critical thought, if you adopt that mode, would be, Bill, when you said those 91 verses had to do with this, your data was wrong. Right? That's a logical argument. Calling me a racist is not a logical argument. So the universities no longer use logic. Next slide. All right. I've defined a problem and I'm going to give you a solution. We have to know Islam. We don't need to know what the Muslim at work says. You need to know Islam. That means you need to know Muhammad, you need to know Allah. You need to learn how to do fact-based reasoning. I've been giving you fact-based reasoning here. Here's something else. You need to know your history of persecution. One of the things you can do if you're a Christian and would like to do something to advance knowledge about Islam in your church, study the history of the persecuted church. I've cracked a New Testament open and I think it commands Christians to deal with the persecution. So that's a solution. We have to start having real talks and we have to say no to political correctness. Political correctness is a disaster. Now let me tell you something about political correctness. I don't complain about political correctness. You know why? I do it anyway. <laughs> Most of you are too nice. You don't want to be politically incorrect. You don't want to use any of those trigger words. <laughs> now you'll complain about it laugh about it but will you toe the line no you line right up and you're, you're politically correct too political correctness doesn't go with any kind of real knowledge next slide I was talking with a lady who advocates for the persecuted church in the Middle East she lives near Dearborn I was talking with her her mother left Damascus on a 747. She was the only Christian on the plane. Why is that? Because the churches down in Tennessee don't care. They make money off of bringing Muslims in. Do they stir any stink about that? No. 
the churches, Christians have to take an attitude of Christians are important. And if we're going to be bringing refugees in, if we're going to be spending my tax dollars, you don't seem to mind yours being spent, but I'll complain about mine. Why not bring in Christian refugees? By the way, I've met some of these people. If you're a Christian and you want to see a real Christian, meet someone from the Middle East as a Christian. Meet a Coptic Christian. You'll find out what Christianity is all about. And it requires a toughness which you do not know how to manifest. That is, I'm saying these people are not a drain. They will be a source of inspiration. Now then, and you need to be able to talk about political Islam because as soon as you want to talk about Islam, people go, oh, that's a religion you can't talk about. When I say that, and by the way, before 9-11, most of my friends were liberals and progressives. My wife was in the film business. But no more. They all gave up finally. They said, okay, you're right. I always debated with them on the subject of political Islam because we can still talk politics in this country. The last election showed us that we could do that. So we have to face the fact that this is a problem. We have to face the fact that migration will not stop until we stop it. And that we have to get off our backsides. Now, I'm talking to a peculiar group to say this to because all of you were willing to come out. Well, this means you have to work with your neighbors and your relatives. I'm very fortunate in my family, they're all good to go with this. In some families, it causes a great division, even between husbands and wives. But if you will learn to speak with the voice of Muhammad, because when I'm talking, <clears throat> it's just like when I gave you that argument on, well, the jihad is, you know, improving yourself, uh, not taking the extra donut. Okay. That's my jihad. <laughs> By the way, do you realize that if Hitler had been written, written, writing his book in Arabic, it would have been mine jihad? Because jihad is struggle, combat struggle. So we have a problem. Now I want to go down, let's go down uh, one more slide, one more slide. And then one more slide. Now then, one of the things that happens, please play a little movie. Oh, press the down key one more time. It just went away. <laughs> Technology is wonderful when it works, and it's not so wonderful when it doesn't work. You're back. You're back. It's back. It's back. Just wait a moment. Come on. What it is is, when, whenever you talk about jihad, if you're dealing with a good liberal, they'll always say, well, what about the Crusades? Well, I prepared that dynamic battle map for the Crusades, just the same one I did for the jihad. And there were 14 battles which were considered offensive. Well, we're not going to have it. Anyway, darn, that was going to be my closer. Well, I've rattled a lot of numbers off to you today. No, it's not playing. Hmm? Oh, yeah, we're, we're the only one not seeing it? Well, the rest of the country is better off than we are. Anyway, the, the point is, is that when you want to talk about Islam, people always say, well, what about the Native Americans killed in America? What about Hiroshima? What about the Crusades? What about this? Notice that what they're trying to do is to say, I don't know anything about Islam, but I do have a complaint I want to make about Western society, so let me talk about my favorite irritation. And that's when I say, no, let us talk about Islam. Let us talk about Muhammad. Let us talk about Allah. HDR, off.
Driver, off, flash, automatic. What's <laughs> <laughs> happening, everybody? So, I've given you a lot of numbers. I'm, what I want to do is to introduce you into a new way of thinking because Islam can be dealt with objectively. Not about whether you like them, not whether you don't like them, not whether you met a nice Muslim or not a nice Muslim. You, there are objective facts to be known here. Our civilization is built on two key principles, neither one of which Islam shares. That's another reason they cannot assimilate. Our ethical system is based on the golden rule. Slavery was finally eliminated because of the golden rule. Women were given the vote because of the golden rule. Okay? The other cornerstone we have is rational thought, scientific thought, critical thought. Islam does not recognize critical thought. It recognizes authoritative thought. No fact can violate the Quran or the Hadith. So therefore, knowledge in Islam is in a small box. And everything has to fit in that box. Our civilization is a better civilization. It is superior. The golden rule is better than treating a Kafir like he's trash. And critical thought is better than authoritative thought. So we have a better civilization. This is a civilizational war. That's the reason where generals like Flynn and Mattis can help us, but only in the war of bullets and bombs. Remember, there are four forms of jihad. Only one of them is about killing people. The others are about deceiving them and spinning the story. So no matter if who we, if we brought General George Patton in to be head of the Pentagon, it would not defeat Islam. Do you see why I'm saying that? Our soldiers cannot defeat Islam. As a matter of fact, the first line of defense on Islam has to be the school board and the police department. This is a civilizational war. It is not a war of bullets and bombs. We can beat them with bullets and bombs, but we can't beat them according to the jihad of speech and writing and money. By the way, Muslims take the donation of money very seriously. I sat in a mosque in Southern California and in 20 minutes time watched them raise out of a group of about 50 to 70 men. I couldn't see the women. They were behind the screen. They raised, I think it was $18,000 in 20 minutes for the purpose of jihad of law. That is uh, filing lawsuits against people like such as myself. Lawfare. Lawfare. But well, the point of the story is the generosity of these Muslims. They sat there and ponied up $18,000 out of a small group. And they were very serious about it. The point I'm making here is these are serious people. They want to win. We want to relax. You know how that works out? And unfortunately, now Trump has been elected, so people, some people are here, well, game over, we won. No. You better believe that already within the bowels of the Trump government there will be people who are kind to Islam. And they'll be saying, oh, you don't really understand. We have not won anything yet. We've just got a beachhead. That's all that's happened. My stepfather did three landing invasions in the Pacific. He was a machine gunner. He was a little deaf. <laughs> Taking the beachhead didn't take the island. We have a beachhead. That's all we have. So we have to, we now have a chance to win, but we have to exercise that. 
And don't think that eight years, you know what Obama said about uh, Trump's election just a bump in the road? The next four years will only be a bump in the road even if we defeat, declare the Muslim Brotherhood uh, a terrorist organization. We will still have fighting to do. It's just we've had a good halftime talk. Thank you so much. Thank you. You didn't know that reason and logic could be so entertaining, did you? <laughs> now, now comes the best part of the show. Okay, we're going to take some q and I'll get the cordless mic. I'll come right over here. You can line up. Please keep your questions short. Pertinent to the conversation Islamic doctrine. By the way, John Guandolo, when we have that Skype here in um, January, he asked, and I'm, I'm asking, invite a policeman, invite a sheriff, invite somebody involved with military or law enforcement. And we need them to hear the message. We also gave credit to all the people in the Trump administration, all the different picks that he made, and our advisors. A little birdie told me on the way here, I happen to be in the car with him driving here. You gonna tell him? Well, it appears as though I'm going to be giving a briefing to people in the uh, security intel intelligence business in D.C. That rocks. Oh, we hear so much about it's only a small percentage of the Muslims we have to worry about. Is that true? I'm never sure what that argument means. If you go into what's called a bad neighborhood, one in which if you get a flat, you don't want to get out and change it, do you realize that in most bad neighborhoods, only about 10% of the people are into crime? Only about 10%. So that means 90% are not into crime. So therefore, how's the neighborhood bad at all? If I give you a glass of water, and I tell you that it has only 10 milligrams of cyanide in it, but the water is 99.99% pure, does that mean it's good to drink? No. I get the picture. Do you uh, have, or can you, distribute um, like a short video, a YouTube video that we can watch and send to our mailing lists and start giving them the basic <coughs> fundamentals of what you're trying to convey. If you go to YouTube, Political Islam, I have, usually they're about four to five minutes, but I have some longer talks. I have one talk that's 45 minutes long that's been seen over six million people called Why We Are Afraid. The reason I made that talk was the three most common questions I'm asked are, is Obama Muslim? What's the difference between Sunni and Shia, which is probably somewhere on the line here? And aren't you afraid? Let me say that I, I'm fairly public and I've never been threatened. But notice what I do. 
Do I insult Muhammad? I say he's the greatest warrior who ever lived because today no one dies for Caesar, Alexander the Great, or Napoleon, but someone died today because of Muhammad. He created a whole new form of war called civilizational war. Well, Muslims just then go, yeah, sounds good. I never insult, I never denigrate. Has anything I've said here insulted or denigrated? If anything, who have I denigrated? Us. I praise them. They want to win. They'll do anything to win and we'll do anything to be comfortable. I never condemn Islam. I never condemn Muslims. Now sometimes I'll, at a public gathering, point out to a Muslim that you only told me half the truth. But as a consequence, I've never been threatened. I advise you and I encourage you to do the same thing. And take a business card, and if you want, I've got longer forms I'll send you for videos. Yeah, if you go on YouTube, there are plenty of videos there for Dr. Warner. And then just look at the views. Six million views. That's obviously a, a, a video that's well thought of. Yes, thank you so much, Mr. Warner, for coming here. And we are all very enlightened, believe me. And I hope we can all spread it to everyone we know and, and get the message up. I just sort of thought I'd say that I think of Islam as submission. Yes. I think of the word submission when I think of Islam. And I think of immigration as invasion. It's a, accepting these people, in particular, not bringing in the Christians, is a yes. form of submission to Islam. Right. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Warner, for coming today. Uh, it was a very enlightening lecture. But I want to ask, you made only one brief reference about um, the enslavement of Europeans during the invasion of, uh, of, the, of the Muslims over hundreds of years into Europe. And I have done some reading about that, and uh, there was a massive amount of enslavement, uh, including sexual slavery, um, even uh, in the Silk Road, uh, one of the main commodities of the Silk Road was anything but silk, but was in fact slaves. And I wonder if you have any material that delves into that topic. You've asked a fascinating question. I grew up in the South and was very conscious of slavery. Not in the, I grew up in Appalachia, there were no slaves, of course, where I was. But I was aware of the fact in history. I taught for eight years at a historically black college. The standard theory of slavery in America is the evil white men showed up on the coast of Africa, got black slaves, brought them to America, sold them for a great profit, and abused them. I was amazed that even at a black university, they never told the other half of the story, which was when the evil white man on his sailing ship showed up, the slaves were already in the pen. They were put there by a Muslim slave master, a Muslim slave wholesaler. The story of slavery as it's told is very incomplete. And that's what I have to say about a lot of things. It's not that it's wrong, it's just that we only know half the story. So I think we ought to study the full story of this slavery, and we ought to study the fact that I have actually been in the presence of a former slave from Africa. This is very interesting. Remember I told you how the universities, in my opinion, are, are they're corrupt. They deal with ideology, they no longer deal with critical thought. Francis Bach showed up at Vanderbilt University. He's a former slave in the Sudan. He was there to tell his story. Now Nashville has about a 20% population of blacks. So you would figure that at this 
here's an actual slave from Africa talking that you'd have a lot of black Americans there. Zero. The thing you find about a lot of history is that people do not want to know. And what I do is tell them anyway. If you want more books on slavery, take a business card, I'll send you, I've got a whole list of them. Speaking of that, do you have more? What? Business cards. Yes. Okay, I need them because we're running low. I've got more than that, that'll work. Okay. Start. Let me tell you something else weird about slavery in the black community. Have you all heard of a man by the name of Muhammad Ali? Recently died. Do you remember his original name? Cassius Clay. Do you know who Cassius Clay was? He was a white abolitionist. He was named after a white abolitionist. That is, he was named for a man who worked to stop the slavery in America. He took the name of Muhammad and Ali, who were both slaveholders, slave traders, and slave torturers. Muhammad was a slave trader, wholesale, retail, had sex slaves, tortured slaves, prayed while slaves were being tortured. So, if you want to talk about slavery, talk about Muhammad. Next question. Is there anything that we can do to bring the, the Muslim city of Dearborn back into the United States? <laughs> Well, I say, first off, you need to understand they have a beachhead. Let's start with that. I'm not familiar with the politics of Dearborn and its exactness, but I can tell you this, that what needs to happen is that we need to have a clergy which is out there trying to give the ultimate solution to Islam, which is conversion. But if they're up here, where like they're in Tennessee, the only reason that a cleric would go anywhere near that place would be to attend an interfaith dialogue. I'm not sure what to do when they're as in, entrenched as they are in Dearborn. So I can sound foolish enough trying to talk about something I know. I don't want to talk about something I don't know. It's tough. Need more cards. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, while I'm thinking about it. I'm going to pitch my books, and then I'll get back to questions. I've got three books to, to... This one is highly unusual, called Factual Persuasion. You'll find that if you want to debate and reason about Islam, that there's only a few handful of arguments, and they're all cataloged in this book. This book, Sharia, is the best-selling book on Amazon on Islamic law. It was written for a purpose, which was to educate legislators. I was down at the Tennessee legislature, and we, were, we passed the first American Courts for Rare Law. And I was involved in the lobbying process. I realized that the uh, clergy didn't, I mean, the legislators didn't know anything about Islam, so I wrote them, I decided to write a book on Sharia, and I wrote it to be one-eighth and one-inch thick. It sold tens of thousands. And then the last thing I highly recommend is an entire course on Islam. That is, don't try to read the Quran. This is a course, that's, I was a professor for eight years, and this is designed around how to read Stand up and amaze your friends and talk about Muhammad. Next question. Uh, you, you talked about the ambivalence and cowardice and political correctness of professors and clergy. But, um, and I, I agree with that, but there's also, I think, um, from that same group, an open hostility to our own culture and a hatred for our own values from our group that are <coughs> allegedly liberals. Do you agree with that? Um, and I think it drives them to other radicals, like Islamic radicals. If you agree, can you explain why that's happening in this country? 
We have two enemies in this civilizational war. The first enemy, the far enemy is Islam. The near enemy are the left and the apologists for Islam. The left finds it very easy to cohabitate with the Muslims because of a similar view. They both hate our society, want to destroy it so they can build a utopian society, and they both have an emphasis on... Islam is not an emphasis about the individual. Islam is an emphasis about the community. as a special word for it, Umma, U-M-M-A. So they're, they're inherent socialists in the sense of looking out for the entire community. And by the way, I'm not mocking looking out for the whole community. But the left also is not willing to look at its history of cooperation. Remember Khomeini? Khomeini was brought to power not primarily because of the imams, but because of the Tudor party, the left. Five days after uh, Khomeini rose to power, he issued death warrants for every leader of the Tudor party. They had already done their work, and he was not done with them. So the left is not aware of any history here. But you're right, we do have two enemies. And what I find is, is that when I deal with an apocalypse, do you know who's one of the best arguments against Islam is a liberal named Bill Maher, a self-proclaimed progressive. And what he says is this, I believe in equality for women's rights. Sharia denies that. So how come I'm a racist bigot because I want to stand up for women's rights? Why can't you, the same argument works with the left. If you're dealing with the left, point out, instead of dealing with the whole issue, take one issue like women and say, look, Here's how, America, here's how they treat women, and once you've had one of my handy-dandy courses, you'll be able to give a lot of facts about it. And so therefore, get away from Islam and move to a smaller point that you know you can beat them on. That's, why, that's the way I deal with all progressives and liberals. Is I deal with one issue, factual-based, and get them to agree, well, you're right, I'm for women's rights. That's the way I deal with it. Next question. Thanks for your great comments, but like most speakers who come to these events, it lacks in specifics of what we can do to be really effective. And I want to share an effective thing that we can do. Your comments about Christian ministers in your town, well, we have the same thing right here in Greater Cleveland, Northeastern Ohio, and many areas of the United States. In my case, I'm a practicing Catholic, 30% uh, of most voters were Catholic, and you probably know some Catholics. But one of the biggest movers and shakers of promoting the colonization of Islamists in the United States is Catholic charities. So, okay, what can you do? First of all, confront them, because they never talk about it, and most Catholics don't even realize it. The second thing you can do is turn off the money. Turn off the money. They all understand that. The second thing that I'm involved in, and we all should be involved in, we have to remove tenure from the universities. Because that's the big plug that keeps these guys in power to prevent speakers like this doctor from coming to speaking to our students who are being indoctrinated. That was my question, comment. Thank you very much. Thank you, and you're right. Next question. A little bit more complicated than that. I happen to be on a school board. I also am the editor of Liberty News, and you have a copy of it over there. For about the last four years, I've had done nothing but show the truth about Islam. The complaints I get are from Christians, not from Muslims. And the second thing, now, I've got four other school board members and an administration 
they don't want to hear about Islam. I mean, they, they, you know, they can read it in Liberty News all the time, they hear it from me, they don't want to hear it. How do I convince people who should be one of those things that to really be able to make a difference and they don't want to? I go back to the same thing I told him. Stop talking about Islam and instead deal with some issue within Islam you know they stand for or against. That is, break off a little piece of it and use that to talk about and press your point. Don't try to, don't swallow the elephant in one bite. Good point. Thank you very much. Because there are issues which they will agree with you on and they don't agree with Islam. Just seek them out and find them. Well, the, the treating of women is one of them. I love that one because, first off, I love women. We all do. We all do. Amen to that. Okay. Tom, you're up. So, the school boards are very resistant to dealing with this issue, and Islam is being whitewashed in the textbooks. And how much money are the school boards getting regarding Common Core to perpetuate this ideology? I have the tranquility of only having one issue, Islam, political Islam. I'm aware of Common Core and Agenda 21, but I'm not up to speed on them. I just deal, I'm too old to deal with anything more than one issue, so I can't help you. No, I'm serious, I'm 75, you know, I mean, the clock's ticking, I don't have time for anything, I don't have time for a mistress on the side. <laughs> okay, so for the rest of you who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, like me, okay, we gotta stop whining. This is our fight. Our kids are counting on us, we gotta get involved, figure out ways to do it. January, after we uh, listen to Dr. Gord, Mr. Guandolo, we're gonna actually He's talk about leader. interfaith committees and setting up some committees. Finally, people have been asking, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? That's what we're going to do in 2017, is work on some projects and straighten out our community. And that's what ACT is all about. That's what ACT is trying to do around the country, straighten out their local communities. So, it's something we're not going to fix overnight. But if we, let's, what if we don't do it? Then this problem just continues. The Muslim Brotherhood could be thrown out. Islam will continue to advance. They will reconstitute, they'll come back as another name, they'll keep coming at us. They're not going to stop, so we have to keep fighting it. That's just the way it is. Dr. Warner, thank you again. This might already have been addressed by you, but in terms of the actual interfaith meetings, if, if I was to go to one, what would be the one thing you would bring up if you were just somebody like me sitting out in the audience? listening to all this compromise going on, what would you bring up or say? Is there one particular issue, like the women issue, or, or just... One of my, if you go to an interfaith gathering, I have a website which is called Voices for the Voiceless. There's a very simple brochure on it which deals with the fact of what's happening to the Christians. It never mentions Islam, it never mentions Muslims. Instead it talks about ethics. It doesn't even mention any scripture. Take a business card, Voices for the Voiceless, I'd hand out brochures. <coughs> Handing out brochures at political meetings is very powerful. I mean, this nation was founded with a revolution that was partly informed by pamphlets. And when you go to an interfaith gathering or some other sort of thing and hand these out, you're in a, it's a territory that's rich with opportunity of targets. Uh, it was a very good presentation. I enjoyed it. How would you view Islam's uh, approach to democracy? 
Well, if there's a Kaffir and he's supposed to be a Demi and he's in a country which is holding an election, he's not supposed to win. There is no such thing as real democracy inside of a multicultural society. And it just doesn't work. And besides that, if government is to be based on the Sunnah of Muhammad, Muhammad was the sole arbiter of all decisions. There's not a democratic model within the Sunnah of Muhammad. He would sometimes confer with his other people, but it's not compatible. Democracy is a halfway house until you get the full Sharia. Doesn't work. Can you ask if Allah is God? Is that a good question? Again, please. If you ask, is Allah God? Oh, see, now that the question she asks is, is Allah God? This is exactly the kind of question I never deal with. It is a religious question. That is, when I talk about Allah, I merely talk about how Allah thinks that I'm lower than an animal. I only discuss Islam from my viewpoint. I never discuss it from the religion of Islam. So, so therefore, I don't, I don't deal with such questions. I only deal with political questions. Not as all a God. My short answer is no. <laughs> I mean, what kind of God is a deceiver? What kind of God hates half his, the majority of his creation? Allah hates the Kafir. I mean, but they want to say Allah is God. Well, they say a lot of things. <laughs> Next question. Yeah, I have a question about the sword of Islam. Yes. Yeah, the importance of that. Well, the importance Besides of it, well, give me, well, you remember my little curve of Muhammad's success? The flat part was where he got 10 a year was no sword. The rapid rise was the sword. You remember the dynamic battle map I showed you? That was the sword. So that is jihad of the sword. That was what all that was about. They're quite good at it. You see, jihad solves every commanding officer's big problem. People don't want to die. They may not mind killing somebody else, particularly if they're doing it for the government, but they don't want to die. Muhammad created a battle plan, a threat doctrine, which meant that you lose, you win. Because the jihadist is the superior Muslim. Every Muslim, when he dies, suffers the punishment of the grave, left vague but sounding terrible, and the uncertainty of judgment day. The jihadist who dies in the act of jihad goes directly to heaven. So therefore, the jihadist is the superior warrior. So, and you get all those virgins, Huris. So, it sounds like losing would be the best thing, that is getting killed would be the best thing to do. And as a matter of fact, many of the people fighting for ISIS, which is Islamic, by the way, you discover that they, although they train them in doctrine, their main occupation in their brain is to get killed so they can go to paradise. But once you have soldiers who don't mind dying, you can do a lot of things. So, well, that's true. Next question. I'm afraid I have a long question. Um, I really enjoyed your presentation on Islam and, and what to do with that, but uh, I would look forward to your, your presentation on how Christians need to deal with, with all of that, um, because I, I feel that we're really at a disadvantage by having a, a doctrine of uh, love and, and uh, turn the other cheek, and I think it's very difficult for Christians to deal with 
with what you've described tonight. Uh, so, for example, maybe the logic should be, and, I, and the question I have is, how radical should Christians be in terms of insisting that, for example, you don't build a mosque here unless we have a Christian church in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we, don't, um, we don't have the rule of law just apply to a few people, it has to apply to everyone. Maybe we should, should have a, a Sharia book burning. So how radical do we get in terms of dealing with um, radical Muslim? Well, first off, if the church would ever shoulder its burden, which it has dealt with sometimes, even in the Crusades, the response was sword against sword. The response needs to be not against force and violence, but a better argument. And this is just what drives me crazy, is to see Christians just wimp out and wuss out instead of being aggressive. I don't mean aggressive in terms of being mean. Tonight I've been what I call aggressive. Okay, I didn't raise my voice, but I am aggressive. Now I'm pleasant, but I'm very aggressive. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's assertive. I, I, I assert myself, and I also make sure you understand me very... I do, do you think I mince words? No, I don't mince words. So, and I think that would be important for us to understand how we do, do not put ourselves to a disadvantage to the extent of allowing them to put themselves to, to an advantage. And also I think that Christians have reached... Now, I'm, uh, I'm going to be very brief here because we're getting off into religion, but I just did a video called The Doctrine of the Coward. I think there's many things in the New Testament which have been interpreted in the wrong way. That is, turn the other cheek. I think that has application, but I also think it has its limits. One thing, turning the other cheek doesn't count for somebody who can't win. If you're on the street and a gang of thugs is beating you to the ground, do you have the option of turning the other cheek? Do you have any options at all? Turning the other cheek is an option only for the strong. Do you follow me? It's not a, it's not a way for, it's not something that the coward can use. But also, we, we, we need to love our enemies. If you actually love a Muslim, take away his Quran. If you actually love a Muslim, take away his Muhammad. Take away his Sharia. Convert him to Christianity or atheism, I don't care. But if you love him, take that away from him. That's love. Now, I find that most people when they read religious texts take away from it what they brought to it. But Jesus was not a wuss. That would apply. Mr. Warner, uh, when you mentioned that we are confused by the logic of non contradiction, the law of non contradiction says you cannot both believe A and not A at the same time. When you're not logical, and you believe both A and not A are both true, what's that called? What kind of thinking is that? Because that's what you told us to do with this. That's a religion of peace, and it's a religion of jihad. But that's not logical to have those both. So you think like a Western? Yes. <laughs> if you study math, it's not studying arithmetic. Mathematics is somewhat like a game, and you define the rules. If it's checkers, you can only land on the red school black squares, never on the red squares. Now you can change the rules and create a game in which you can be on red and black, okay? It is a form of logic, even though you're like, it, it is not 
the form of logic you use. It is not mathematical. But it, you can create a form of logic in which two things contradict each other, and yet they're both true. You just declare them both to be true. But it's very confusing to, when you run up against it. But once you diagnose it, it's like you can actually use it to your advantage. Because you can always deal with the Muslim and say, you're only telling me half the story. Let me tell you the rest of that story. So you can actually use this to your advantage. So is that creating new, new rules, or is that just rules of the game that we have That's to play? That's the way they play the game. Okay. So the way they play the game rules. is that the interfaith gathering, they sit there and say, ah, well, you have your, from the Quran, you have your religion and we have ours, and let there be no compulsion in religion. That's what they quote. But you need to know enough to be able to quote the jihad verses in response and tell them my verses are better than your verses. But it is a, it is a bizarre thing. But, real quickie quiz here, physics also has some strange things in it which you probably never thought about. One of the fundamental questions in physics is what is the nature of the universe? Is it matter or energy? The answer is yes. <laughs> if you try to measure it in the form of energy, you'll get an energy result. If you try to measure it in the form of materialism, material substance, you'll get a material result. Just like dealing with the electron. It's a wave, it's a particle. Wait a minute, Bill, it can't be both. Yes, it is. So there are forms of logic. I'm trained in quantum physics, and that's the reason I created this concept called dualism. Next question. What about Tachika? You mean Tachia? Ah. Tachia means sacred deception. Which is a, and, and Allah is one of the greatest, Allah is the greatest deceiver. Now, as you're normally, well, let's see, I, would, I won't say we're not any of us trained in deception. Uh, being a teenager, being with girls, I did learn that deception could advance my cause somewhat. But, I wasn't always this old. But nevertheless, in most dealings, although the game will very well skip the love business. Muhammad said, here's an example of a hadith about deception. Muhammad said, who will kill Ashraf, who has offended Allah and his prophet? Ashraf was a Jew who wrote a poem mocking Muhammad. That's all he did. I will, Muhammad, but I will need to deceive him. May I have your permission to do so? Deceive him. And so they deceived Ashraf and killed him. So in more than once did Muhammad tell the, his followers, deceive the kafir if it will advance Islam. That's what the kia is. The kia is telling half the truth, not the whole truth, or just denying it. Just out now line. But it's an interesting concept to have within your system a formal look. In a political season, everybody knows that you're going to hear some deceptions. But no one ever walks up in front of the stage and says, I'm, a, I'm running for city council and I'm, I'm going to deceive you. I mean, that doesn't work. So at the same time, it is interesting, I think, that there is such a thing as deception in Islam in a formal sense, up front, not some sneaky thing in the back room. Next question. Or in other words, if you have a community agitator in chief that lies and deceives all in the cause of Islam for eight years to a country, that's Takiya. Okay, yeah, okay, doctor. Um, I'm very interested in um, you're going to be able to have a conversation with the leadership for uh, 
uh, the new administration. And I know you said that you would maybe have a chance to talk to the military people. Well, how about the religious people? Because I think they had a big persuasion of what happened all around the country. It sounds like getting your message out to the right uh, religious leadership, whether it's on a local level or on a national level, I think it's going to be an important point of the clock. So are they going to be invited on that conversation when you have that? No. <laughs> I, I'm, not setting up, I'm not setting up the conversation. Okay. This is, I'm invited to yeah. brief. Okay. Uh, and let me assure you that in Nashville, Tennessee, there are, there are no religious leaders who want to sit down with me because I ain't shy. I mean, I make YouTube videos, I condemn them in public. Well, yeah, that's a problem. So I think it's going to be on the individuals to talk with their uh, leadership on a local level. And, and, you know, there's a lot of churches around there. Maybe you can find somebody that's going to take a little bit different stance on things. And until we do that... I have done that. And by the way, let me say, that when I condemn the churches, I'm only condemning 95% of them. <laughs> no, now we need to be very clear here. In Tennessee, there are some people who are religious leaders who are bold, they're strong, they're brave. They also don't lie, cheat, and steal, but they're also courageous. So there are such people. I don't want to be it like there's never existed. You know, the gentleman just asked about the talking to the religious leaders, so I am going to suggest this to Pastor Church, who is with the Family Research Council, and you know, he was the point person for Franklin Graham in Ohio on the National Bus Tour. Now, Franklin Graham knows that the Brotherhood was here. Franklin Graham certainly could call up Cardinal Dolan and say, let's have a talk. This is what the Catholic Church is doing to our country. Those two should be able to talk and figure it out. That's going to be my suggestion. Two more questions and we're going to wrap it up. And my feet are getting tired. <laughs> Not a question, just an observation of mine. It's a psychological warfare that Ohio State stabbing, cutting, slashing was one of them. We just beat Michigan. Ohio State was a location that caught the country's attention. So psychological warfare on Monday, they had that serious stabbings and run on with car, with car, right? To take away our parade. 911 happened, 911. That's our favorite number for emergencies, isn't it? So when you say 911, you think of 911, psychological warfare. The Boston, the Boston Marathon bombing. Everybody's there to have a good time. Does anyone know who were the first, second, and third runners were in the men's and women's races? No. Everyone knows that it was a bombing. Psychological warfare. I think they're, they have the phone numbers. I think, I believe the Muslims, the Brotherhood has the phone numbers and name, names and phone numbers of all these college students around the country. And anything that would be at all could catch the ear, could eye of people. We have a good incident and then they make a bad one out of it. They're like traveling on that fame of the, in this case, a game we won against Michigan. But then they have their game and the world watches it. A psychological warfare is what they're doing. I, agree. I want to add one thing to it. Most people might not know this, but if you were watching that game, Michigan and Ohio State, Urban Meyer came to the microphone afterwards. There was a Muslim that got in behind him with a Hamas scarf, waving it to the audience. I knew it. I don't know how many people really knew what was going on, but that's what it was. But there is symbolism there. Hopefully this will be your quickest question. 
If migration is there a method of attacking us, isn't unmigration the solution? Yes. Very good, John. I think we're good. All right, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. And. Uh...